and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today on the computer with my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, you guys. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. <laughs> Medea and I were trying to wait to see who's going to jump in first. Who is going to jump in first? It's hard without those uh, without those in-person cues, right? We're just all speaking, I know. In, speaking into the void right now. I it's miss true. being with you guys in the studio. Yeah, I do too. The purple squiggly lines are not a good substitution for actually seeing faces. <laughs> no, they're not, but I'm sure we're all going to be finding the nuances of, of those lines more and more in these coming um, months. And um, we're going to be recording new shows remotely in the future. But this week, we thought we'd listen back to an old interview we did with the writer Jenny O'Dell about her book, which is called How to Do Nothing. Yes, something that actually a number of us are trying to learn how to do right now (laughs) or how to do a lot of things when we have nowhere to go. Yeah, it's a very timely interview and Despite the the limited presence we can all encounter, still try to find space for a lot of contemplation and IRL interaction, even if, you know, we're also becoming more and more on our screens these days. I have found that I, I haven't had that much trouble doing nothing, but I'm trying to figure out ways to do more things actually, but I, I suppose this Jenny O'Dell's version of nothing is the more useful version of nothing than the nothing that I have been doing. <laughs> right. Well, what, what kind of nothing have you been doing? Well, so most of the nothing that I've been doing is reading the news, which I suppose is nothing, but it feels like nothing. And I've been cooking, which I've not done truly for at least five years. Mm. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I totally forgot how to cook, but I'm, I'm relearning it as we speak. Definitely co-signing that. I was always a huge cooker, like for a long time, I'm the cook in, in our household. And so I've been actually loving getting the time to like dive back into recipes like pot roasts and like lentil soup and all kinds of stuff that I just don't do when I have all these other places to be and things to do. Wow. Well, that's yeah, great. Same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can't quite share that experience, but I applaud you guys. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Kate, what, what kind of things have you been doing? I think I'm just doing more domestic work than normal. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. But at the same time, you know, how to do that and not, not go crazy and how to enjoy it and still kind of keep your foot in, in thinking and, and reading. That's, that's more my struggle these quarantine days. Well, should we listen back to our conversation with Jenny O'Dell and figure out ways to do nothing with a purpose? Yes, that would be great. And on behalf of all of us at LARB, we hope you and yours are staying healthy and safe in these strange and difficult times. We have Jenny O'Dell with us today. Jenny O'Dell is an artist and writer who teaches at Stanford. She has been an artist in residence at places like the San Francisco Dump, Facebook, the Internet Archive, and the San Francisco Planning Department. She has exhibited art all over the world. She lives in Oakland. Her new book is called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. 
It's about figuring out ways to take a pause from the demanding productivity of our everyday world. Thank you so much, Jenny, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Jenny, it sounds like the 2016 election was a big part of the impetus of writing this book. And you have this beautiful image of you after the election going to the Rose Garden in Oakland. And as you say, just kind of doing nothing, looking, being there and finding a lot of solace in that after what had happened. But as someone who works with technology in your art and someone who's from the Silicon Valley or grew up in the San Francisco area, I'm wondering before even the election, what your relationship with technology has been and how you've balanced social media, email, all these things just in your everyday life before. And if it's been like something that was easy for you to balance or has that been a challenge? Oh, it's definitely been a challenge. I would say my relationship has always been complicated. My relationship with technology, I think that it's hard to kind of separate not only, you know, like the things that are helpful about even something like social media from the things that are harmful. It's also, I think, really easy to forget that technology is a really broad category and that it can do, you know, many different things. So I always have to remind myself that binoculars are a form of technology (laughs) and I'm a bird watcher. So obviously I like binoculars and in a similar vein, something that I had been thinking about for years, even before the election in terms of technology was as an artist, how one could create experiences that might be digitally mediated or use technology, but they ultimately give the viewer more access to the often physical world. That's something I've been trying to do and also collect examples of to show my students in my digital art classes. So So, what are some examples um, of that, just out of curiosity? I think the first example that really made it very clear to me was it's actually a David Hockney piece, and I talk about it in the book, but David Hockney is often thought of, he's a painter. I think that's most people's association with his work, but he does have a series of pieces that he made where he mounted a grid of cameras to the side of his car and drove very slowly down the side of a kind of small country road in the UK. And then this video is played on a grid of screens that are flush with each other. So it's a grid of video of passing down the street, but the imagery is not perfectly aligned. So it's not one continuous image. It almost looks kaleidoscopic. It sort of tricks you into having to look at every single screen, to look at every part of the image instead of just one part of it. And it's really, really slow. So it's also suggesting that there's a lot of detail there. And it was on display at the de Young Museum in San Francisco. And I talked to some of the docents there about how people would look at this piece and then they would go outside where there's a botanical garden and come back later and say that things look different to them outside. So mm-hmm. it's this moment where you're you're indoors and you're having a you're having an experience that might feel isolated and it was created using something digital and it's on a screen, but ultimately the sort of point of it is that you see more when you go outside and David Hockney has been he talks about this a lot that he wants to teach people a different way to see. So that's something that I have always been interested in, you know, satellite imagery microscope imagery, like things that we would think of as very technologically mediated that are really just like an apparatus for a different way of seeing. So one thing about the book is, and this happened at our office, is that when we got copies of it, everybody grabbed it immediately in that I think everybody's understanding of what it means to do nothing. It's very appealing. And yet I'm fairly certain all the people who grabbed it in the office had different ideas of what it meant. Can you explain a little bit about 
what it means to do nothing in the context of your book? It's not immediately intuitive. Right, right. Definitely not intuitive. I think that the best way to describe it would be that it's anything non-goal-oriented. So my go-to example has always been walking somewhere versus going for a walk. So if you're walking somewhere, especially if you're in a hurry, you're trying to find the most efficient way to get there. And it's not about what you're seeing on the way there. It's about getting to your destination versus going for a walk, in which case you might actually be actively seeking an inefficient route because you might just be ending up back at home. And the point of going for a walk is walking. So as soon as you're walking, you have achieved your goal. And I think it's a really important distinction to make because especially as someone who grew up in Silicon Valley, I'm extremely aware of how easily non-goal-oriented ways of thinking and activity can be co-opted to a form of goal-oriented thinking. So, Mm -hmm. for example, like the mindfulness craze in Silicon Valley, right? Or like this idea that you would do nothing in order to be, that it would help you come up with more ideas to be more productive at work. That's something that I'm like really trying to distance myself from. But I think we have an instinct to try to collapse everything to something useful. And it's really hard to escape that. I think that's maybe a reason that sites like Facebook and Twitter are so confusing for me because they do seem... I mean, you have a really wonderful example here of this city walk, like the difference between a kind of like fake public space and a real one. But they seem like these places where there isn't an obvious goal, let's say on Facebook or Twitter. It's just about sharing information, you know, conversing with people. But yet they create this a very toxic environment many times, or they create something in us that kind of lessens our attention. So what do you think about these sites in particular, or like social media in general, in terms of how is it not, I mean, besides the fact that it's owned by corporations, how is it not like a place to kind of do whatever, say whatever, do whatever, talk? I mean, yeah, what's different about it? I think that it has to do a lot with the way the interface is often somewhat gamified. So yeah, in theory, you're going to the space to, you know, just like look at a bunch of different stuff or feel connected to your friends or see what people are up to. It would be great if it was just that. But it very quickly, I think, turns into this kind of like narcissistic, but also anxiety producing situation where you, it's assumed or at least suggested that you should get as much exposure as possible just through like the number of likes and retweets. And I don't know, it's just like, as long as you have the situation of a sort of contextless, huge anonymous sea of people in which other people are sort of trying to shout over each other and get as much attention as possible, because that's just sort of assumed, like that's what you're supposed to do in this space. I think it very quickly becomes, I don't know if I would call it goal oriented, but there's like this mindset of optimization Mm -hmm. that runs through the whole thing and sort of like, crafting the best identity or crafting the best sentence that makes it the furthest through this morass of expression. And it's really amazing how quickly you can forget what it was that you were actually looking for and just kind of succumb to that assumption. But something in this book is that you're not coming out. It would be easy just to condemn social media or condemn, you know, parts of the kind of gig economy, but it's not exactly that you're coming out against that. It seems that you're talking about building an attention within ourselves, right? Right. Like a private world and more of internal and interaction with the natural world as well. 
maybe you could talk about some of your ideas about how to do that. Sure. I think just one of the things that I am the most concerned about, and that includes me still like day to day, is one's own sense of interiority, because I think it's very tied to to will and agency. You know, like I think that a lot of reflection and processing comes from a situation where you are removed enough to do that. And that doesn't always have to be literally you're alone, although I do spend a lot of time alone and and need a lot of time alone. That could be, you know, like having a long conversation with a friend or a couple of friends or family members. But, But the point is that it's not this like public self and it's a time and space in which you're allowed to be a bunch of different things, you know, the opposite of a personal brand. Like you might change day to day, you might change your mind, you might have contradictory qualities, you might have not made up your mind about something yet. You know, like these states that are, I think, threatened by the total overexposure of oneself online and needing to constantly express oneself. I just think these things are so integral to remembering your own humanity, but also just thinking and processing because there is so much that we need to think about and process right now. Like there's more than there's ever been. And so it's like this awful situation where you have more and more that you would need or like to process and less and less time to process it. Mm -hmm. You have this great breakdown of this idea between I, it, and I, thou, where it's about the ways in which the I relates to the outside world. So I, it is a little bit more object-oriented where the others around us become others, meaning you include animals as well, objects that might in some capacity serve us ultimately so that you approach people as goal-oriented in terms of just their sheer being. But then I, thou is more of a way of approaching people with a sense of humanity. Can you break down a little bit how... You cite a lot of different writers and authors in this book, but how you reach that dichotomy and how you think about it? That specific idea is from Martin Buber's book of that name, I Thou, and it really helped crystallize some vague feelings that I had had about the way the world appears to someone from the point of view of, for example, a personal brand or even just someone who is following all of their algorithmic recommendations and consuming the content that is being recommended to them because it seems like it would be relevant to them or being friends with all the suggested friends. And, you know, actually, there's a book that I read recently that if I had read it before, it would totally be cited in my book, who also talks about Eyes Out, and it's called The Agony of Eros by Byung-Chul Han. And he calls this state, the kind of I-it state, the inferno of the same. And it's this basically this feeling that you're only ever encountering yourself, like reflected back to you. So everything only has meaning to you insofar as it can be consumed by you. And it also, I think, is tied to this feeling that you could have anything you want at any time. It's sort of like the Amazon one-click shopping view of the world. <laughs> and in that feeling, there's no, there's no limit. So he talks a lot about limits in that book and that actual desire and curiosity And Eros, as he calls it, like comes from a real genuine encounter with something that is outside of you, that is not graspable to you, may never be graspable to you, you don't have control over. And that without these things, you're sort of, you're marooned in this, the inferno of the same and that this causes depression and a sense of dullness and endlessness. And I think the way that he's describing this, the limits and this encounter is like, 
that's basically exactly what I experience when I go bird watching. And it's why I talk about bird watching so much in the book is because, you know, it's like I have a relationship with birds. I would say that I love birds, but I don't feel any sense of ownership towards them. And I don't see there's no absolutely no like economic quality to like going bird watching. There's no like personal brand equivalent of going bird watching. You can't make birds do things you want them to or show up at a certain time and place. Like there's so many ways in which I don't have control over that. It'll only ever be this relationship of surprise and awe and fascination, but it'll never be like birds can never appear like content or like products to me. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons I love them so much and why like they are such good reminders to me of, of the world that exists outside of that mindset. Interesting, though they can, of course, become and bird watching can become like a part of a personal brand like Jonathan Franzen, for example, who has, I think, made incorporated that into his public persona. Or doesn't it also become about like how many birds you've you've seen seen, or what? Oh, I've saw this bird, I saw that bird. But I relate to what you're saying. And I think it's a more adult, like I just think of this example with my child who when he sees a truck, then he says, more truck, more truck. Like he wants to see more and he thinks I can like control, you know, when a truck (laughs) passes by. I say, no, you have to wait. I don't know when there's going to be a truck. So it's definitely, um, it's, it's a learned, it's an adult way of dealing with the world as opposed to this childish thing of thinking you can control everything and get what you want all the time. Right. I think that can feel frustrating or scary to people if they're not used to it. But but the truth is, like, those are the most exciting moments. I mean, so much of the idea of the Inferno of the Same is, like, it's sort of like boredom. It's sort of like going on Spotify and being like, you can listen to any song you want to listen to. Like, what will it be? You know, and it's like this paralyzing, stupefying feeling. I just talked to someone the other day about, we were talking about this idea of limits, and he said, that he was only letting himself listen to music from one year every year. So he's, he's on 1959 right now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, you know, I get really genuinely excited for the new year because it means I get to listen to new music. And like, I don't think I would ever be able to do that. But I think that that does say a lot about what we actually find surprising and exciting and that that always requires a sense of a true encounter with something other that you can't, there are things about it that are given that you can't change. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. Susan Strait back in the studio. Susan is the author of many novels, and most recently, she's the author of In the Country of Women, which is a memoir about her family. And she has a book to recommend. Susan, what book are you going to recommend to us? Since I was 12, I always recommend my favorite book, which I didn't even fully understand when I was 12. And I reread it at least once a year. And it seems especially appropriate to say today, the day that we found out that Toni Morrison died, that my favorite book in the world has always been Sula. And I have my original copy that I got when I was actually 12 years old at a grocery store. And it shows a young woman with a yellow rose and she's wearing a black dress that's printed, a floral print. And my children grew up seeing this book and it was like one of my most prized possessions. In this new book, I end up 
bringing up Sula so often that my editor said, you got to cut a couple of these out. (laughs) Sula is my favorite book of all time because it's about two girls who are best friends, Sula and Nell, and they're very opposite from each other. Nell is raised by a really straight-laced woman who's trying to escape her past as the daughter of a very light-skinned prostitute in Louisiana, in New Orleans. Sula herself is being raised by her mother and grandmother in a house that has many rooms and many floors and many doors. And her grandmother, Eva Peace, is this really strong, resilient woman who supposedly cut off her own leg at the knee to collect on the insurance so she could raise her own three kids after her husband left. But it's the language of Sula that entranced me when I was so young and didn't know I wanted to be a writer. I thought I wanted to be a nurse until my mom accidentally ran me over. And then I was in traction for two months in the hospital. And then I realized I didn't want to be a nurse because it was pretty awful. I read Sula every year because these two young women separate when one gets married. And Nell gets married and Sula goes down the road. And when they come back, everything is different. And yet they realized that the only thing that had mattered was their friendship. And this notion of Sula's independence, she says that she will never be given a secondhand lonely by a man leaving her. And that was sort of how I looked at the world is even though I got divorced, I wasn't handed a secondhand lonely. I still lived my life the way I wanted to. And even right now, my, my middle daughter who's 28 is driving around with me today and she's joking because what she remembers about Sula is there's a scene where Hannah, Sula's mother, is taking care of a peck of green beans and she is shelling and snapping them and her long fingers move as if she's playing a complicated instrument. And my daughter always did the green beans and we'd stand next to each other at the sink. And I told her one time that that is what I see every time I see her doing it. I see a scene from a book. It was pretty weird to grow up with a mom who saw everything through the lens of fiction. But I have seen so many things in my life through the lens of the beautiful writing in Sula by Toni Morrison. Wow, that's an amazing recommendation. And so you've read Sula every year. Wow. I have my original copy. I just wrote about it for the LA Times for summer summer books. Nell stops to think one day and Sula comes, comes into Nell's house and she does so by scratching on the screen like when they were kids and she comes in and Nell has three kids and they start talking and only Sula can make Nell laugh so hard that she cries and I have friends like that, my old, old friends. And when they get together and we start talking about the old days and, oh, we were at this party and then they played this and then he did that. And, oh, you remember when we were out in the orange groves? And that's the way my kids look at me and my cousins and friends when we talk about the old days is we're sort of this world of women apart. So, yeah, it's Sula. Beautiful recommendation. All right, tell us the title and author one more time. The book is Sula by Toni Morrison. Thank you so much, Susan. I was Susan Strait, whose most recent book is In the Country of Women. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing. In this book, um, you approach this, this act of doing nothing in a variety of ways. One of the other ways is about talking about this history of refusal. And you have a chapter called The Anatomy of Refusal. And I, I really thought that was a very interesting part of what of your argument. Can you talk about what is refusal to you? What does it mean to refuse and so, how do we do it? I think 
I mean, I think there are a lot of ways that maybe, maybe the one that I'm the most fixated on in, in that chapter in particular is like a refusal that not only doesn't comply, but it doesn't even comply with the terms of the question. You know, my example is, is Bartleby from Bartleby the Scrivener, who keeps saying I would prefer not to when asked to do various tasks in the office. And I love that story so much because it's, you know, it's told from the point of view of, you know, the person who's asking him mm-hmm. and he's so galled by this answer. <laughs> like he, he just expects the answer to be yes or no. He's like not prepared for this other weird answer that is like, no, no, I won't. But also like, I won't even answer your question. And then he won't answer the question of why he won't answer the question. And it just goes on and on forever. And he's described at one point as inscrutable. And I think like, I, I love the idea of becoming inscrutable, like not only not doing what you're asked to do, but actually refusing to even participate in the terms of the question itself. And I think that that's really important for me in the book because I'm, you know, I, I'm trying to seek something outside of, you know, the idea of the digital detox or the idea of quitting social media altogether, like cold turkey. Um, I think that these are sort of like still engaging with that question in the yes or no way. And it's almost like I'm interested in like walking sideways, like away from that problem and the way that it's being framed and so that it can be observed in kind of a wider context. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's something in the book that I'm like the most kind of interested in and also unsure about because, you know, to me, it would seem like the if we can acknowledge that Facebook and t- Twitter and other social media sites are basically using us to generate money and, and not necessarily giving us a ton in return, although that's something I, I'm curious what you think, like what the upside of these sites are, um, why wouldn't we just refuse? Like, why wouldn't we just walk away? Why wouldn't we say we don't like the way this attention economy works? So we we actually have the control to end it. And that isn't your answer. And 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 it, it and so I'm maybe you could talk about why that's not exactly sufficient or like what is the purpose of, you know, walking sideways as opposed to just saying, you know what, no, I don't want to do this. I mean, I will say that I, I feel like I, in general, the whole book is addressed almost to like this in-between moment in between like what we have right now, which is not great. And like something that I optimistically imagine towards the end of the book, which is a non-commercial decentralized social network. I mean, you know, if someone wants to quit Facebook and Twitter and all that, like, great. And I've heard, I know many people who have done that and it's actually been great for them, but it is like for the time being, it is where a lot of people are and so in between now and when we would have you know it'd be great if we had something better it's that is our social media for now and mm-hmm. and I think that some form of social media like is helpful you know like for you know communicating and especially something I've been thinking a lot about is like in you know extreme weather events right like being able to just like share information very quickly about where things are happening right the idea of a social network in itself, I actually have no problem with. And I give the example at the end of the book also of community memory from the 1970s, which was basically just literally a digital bulletin board. <laughs> like it was next to a physical bulletin board and it serves the exact same purpose. And it was it was almost like Craigslist, right? It was just purely utilitarian and people had a lot of fun with it. But 
it was almost just like a public utility. Um, and that's what I would love to have someday. But, and yet in the meantime, you know, this is what we have. Mm-hmm. And because another idea in the book is kind of like public, a more public act of refusal. Like you, um, you're an artist and you have a lot of examples of performance art of like Tom Green lying down in the street and pretending to be dead. And that so it's not just silently walking away necessarily that you have to kind of that it's that it might make a larger impact if you do it in some kind of public sense. Does that? I yeah, mean, and, be, yeah. Especially in terms of yeah. leaving social media. I mean, you're saying like, okay, you can, but it might not necessarily make the impact of of doing something else. Right, and maybe you know, maybe walking away is the wrong phrase. Like, I in the book, I use the phrase resistance in place, which is like a way of refusing without leaving. And so, you know, like I talk about Diogenes, the the cynic philosopher who, you know, stayed right in the middle of the city, didn't leave and just acted super weird all the time. (laughs) Um, I was kind of like constantly flouting customs, but there were other philosophers who did, you know, flee to the hills. There were cynic philosophers who killed themselves. There were, you know, like escape was an option and he didn't do that. He sort of like remained in the, I would prefer not to state. Like, he was like, I'll be here, but I, I will not participate in the way that you're asking me to. I think I find that compelling because it's some, it's like a movement that happens already in the mind. Like, it's like you've made a decision and without having left, you are now participating in a way that is not the way that you've been asked to participate. And you might even be doing it in a way that kind of like uh, troubles a lot of the assumptions of, of the ways that you are supposed to act or engage with something. Yeah, and I actually thought that Diogenes was such a great example yes, what you called um, refusal in place, because it contextualizes or recontextualizes the nothing of the title of this book, which I, I'm sorry I keep going back to, but I just want to make clear that it's actually, it's a very active nothing. You're not, it's not actually doing nothing. It's actively deciding to refuse. And so that means making a decision and, and participating in a way that isn't sheer resignation or shutting down or ridding yourself of the body or becoming a heretic or some, or a hermit rather, but just an active form of doing what you call nothing. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it is, you know, something you have to do day after day. Someone at a reading that I just did last month during the Q and a said that she had bought the book thinking it was going to be like relaxing, which I think probably a lot of people do and then she was like you know the more and I read about it the more it sounded hard um and it sounded like arduous and and like it required discipline and like that's a lot of what that chapter is about is discipline and yeah so doing nothing is actually quite difficult um in a situation that requires you to be doing something with some sort of like visible reason to be doing that um, or something that you can show for your time that, that you're supposed to figure your entire life is this kind of like product that you could optimize by spending all your time in the most optimized possible way, including leisure, right? Like actually rejecting that framework altogether, even a little bit at a time is really hard. Um, I still think it's hard um, <laughs> and I still struggle with it. And, and it's one of the reasons I think, you know, later on in that chapter, I talk about the 1934 waterfront strike in San Francisco and how, you know, the, the legislation that allowed for unionization was so key in that strike that you had all of these individual people 
subject to totally inhumane work conditions, but if they didn't accept those and someone was always next in line to take them, um, and that it really required this grouping together and communication to actually push back against that. And I, I think that's so relevant right now because it is hard to refuse anything in a sustained way, but it, I think it becomes a lot easier if you can link up with others who are trying to resist the same thing and just remaining in communication with them and, and through, you know, that communication, like rendering this world in which this is possible. I think like the things that I'm describing, they're actually really hard to just do alone. Ultimately, it's like, I, I hope that the book sort of like clears some kind of ground in which people could look around at things around them, including like the people around them that uh, they might be able to sort of grab onto as a way of resisting the attention economy. Yeah, and maybe this group refusal is one way of also addressing something that you do, you also bring up in the book, um, is that refusal is very often relegated to the realm of the privileged, that it is the people who can refuse or have the privilege to refuse that can maybe do that, um, whereas many don't really have that, the space to do that. Meaning, if I had funds, I could just go alone and live somewhere and refuse the various ways in which otherwise I'd have to participate in the capitalist economy, but I don't, I don't have those, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you must work or, but this example of the union is kind of an example of ways in which that might be a potential answer to that. Yeah. And, and I also think, you know, I, some of the suggestions that I make in, in the book are similar to what others, you know, have already said about privilege, which is that if you have it, you should use it and use it to kind of like open up more space for others who don't have it. So I think that that is one really just like helpful way of thinking about like how to link together people who have varying levels of privilege and not thinking of these as like totally separate groups. But, and I, yeah, that's, you know, and especially for the, the part at the end of the book where I talk about context collapse and how, you know, like the history of activism shows this kind of like, repeating pattern of groups of people who recognize each other um, and have context with each other um, acting in ways um, that have context and then are all maybe like part of a sort of federated structure where they're all in touch with each other and sharing knowledge. But that's very different than the kind of like shouting into the void that you would see on Twitter. Similarly, I feel like I was seeing this, the privilege thing as well, where you see like this really like this leveraging where the leveraging of people who do have a platform or do have privilege to support people who don't. And so like, that's something I, I remain really interested in. Your book, and it actually reminded me of um, what happened with the Whitney Biennial this year. And, you know, some artists basically saying like, we, we can't, we like the idea of, of backing out of the Biennial because of Warren Candor's the a board member who was working with the tear gas, but we can't because we were artists and it's such a, you know, we, we basically, we can't turn down this opportunity despite the fact that we'd want to because we need to better our careers, even though we agree with it. Um, and, and some of the debates around that. And then, so, you know, finally enough artists did back out and um, he resigned. The yeah. solidarity question is, is certainly um, important. And right in that chapter about refusal, like I talk about being able to afford to refuse and the kind of margin of refusal that people experience very differently. Um, but obviously, yeah, solidarity and, and, and a, a large enough group of people, i.e. a union, affects 
the margin for everyone in it and it and it makes it it makes it more affordable for for everyone to refuse i'm wondering you know you so you had this idea for a talk how to do nothing and you ended up writing a book so you you did a big something i wonder how the process especially since we're talking about attention um what the process of working on this book was like and um if it you know of researching and reading um do you feel like that enhanced a kind of like quietude and, and attention within you or was it a struggle because i'm sure you did a lot of re- re- research online possibly so like what was this process like for for you in the frame of you know the larger ideas in the book I actually am really nostalgic for last summer, which is when I wrote the book, because I felt like I experienced a level of just focus that I have not really experienced since. I teach full-time, so it ended up being that I basically only had four months to write the book, which sounds really crazy, but that was four months of not doing anything else. I only did this one thing every day. Um, I didn't think about anything else. I didn't do anything else. And uh, and so it really allowed me to just totally immerse myself into these questions. And almost like the reason there are so many things in the book that happened to me during that summer that end up getting folded in is because I saw everything through the filter of the book um, while I was writing it. So all of my experiences became, you know, potential references in, in the book. But and I, I actually, I did do some research online, but I spent a lot of time in the library, um, in the Stanford library, um, just kind of, and for some reason, all of the subjects that I needed to reference were in the basement level. I don't know why. <laughs> They're very disparate, but they were all in the basement. And I, you know, I talk in the book about removal and feeling removed. I felt very removed. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like, you know, I wasn't sharing anything about what I was writing really online, except to say that I was writing a book. Um, it was just kind of me and this material and these questions and like the friends that I was talking to. And I did feel like I had that interiority that I so highly value in the book. And I, I don't think the book would have been possible without it. So yeah, things have been a lot crazier since then. <laughs> and uh, I, yeah, I, I often get nostalgic for that, for that sense of just like only doing one thing and really just focusing on that one thing. Okay, so this is this is the last question. Okay, so my question for you is what it's a little bit about comfort and how to feel comfortable within a space of let's of this version of doing nothing. So partly that would be how does one feel comfortable with refusal or disobedience, but also how does one feel comfortable sort of accepting that what they're doing at the moment has no no goal or has no um has no foreseeable or uh, desirable outcome that it's it's just for the activity of doing it because i I think that can be a very uncomfortable space to occupy yeah absolutely i think a lot about just things like love and curiosity which can be experienced like a goal like they almost have the sensation of being a goal but they aren't one or they aren't one in the same way that, you know, our other, you know, (laughs) other goals we're normally um, used to measuring ourselves by like productivity or something like that. Um, Like love and curiosity to me are just like self-justifying. They're also things that like children have um, and, you know, animals have, you know, like the crows that I talk about in 
uh, that, that come to my balcony every morning that I've befriended. Like I, I see them like being curious about things like on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I think that that can be like a really magnetic thing. Um, and so I, you know, like I use the word disengage a lot in the book, but it's not as if the, the attention economy is obviously very seductive, but it's not as if like I step away from that and then, and then it's just sort of empty. Um, I actually feel like an equal draw in the opposite direction toward, you know, in my case, like birds and ecology, but I think, you know, it could be anything, right. It could be like spending time with a good friend or I don't know, like learning about local history or just like really like anything that invokes a sense of love or curiosity, because I think curiosity is like a drug. Um, I have done many art projects where like, I actually almost like ruined my life because I was like, so curious about stuff like the artist residency that I did at the dump, mm-hmm. for example, like I, I sort of like had no life while I was there because I just was so intensely focused on like researching these strange objects. And so I think knowing that, you know, like I, I'm careful not to like instrumentalize the idea of doing nothing, but I do think you can like know, or you can like know about the things that incite this feeling in you and, and keep them at arm's length. And, and that that would make it easier to disengage from, you know, this, this one thing that feels very addictive and become absorbed in a different way with something else. I think, you know, I, I don't know if that necessarily feels comfortable, but I think it makes it, it's almost like you, it, it might make it so that you forget about even trying to be comfortable. <laughs> Okay. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Jenny O'Dell. She's an artist and writer who teaches at Stanford. Her newest book is called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thanks. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 